Hello, and welcome to another episode of Pizza Punk. My name is Jeff, and today we are talking punk rock. I mean, sometimes we talk punk rock on here, but today is a day to really talk about punk rock. We got really cool dude with us. I'm very excited to have him. Uh, a few housekeeping items while he waits in the digital greeting room. And you know what? We'll, we'll let him muse the question over that we ask all of our guests on the show. Is pizza punk? And if it's punk, why is it punk? And if it's not punk, why is it not punk? The answer is subjective. So while he mulls that over, we're going to just do some very quick house, housekeeping here. Housekeeping! Um, I first, I just want to shout out um, my friends in Voice of Doom. They have a show at the Bowery Electric. Let's pull, let's pull this Mimma Jam up for a minute. Hold on. It's going to be, they have a show at Bowery Electric. I am sadly not going to be able to make it. I was planning on going. And of course, uh, Murphy and his law get in the way of everything. I will not be able to make it, but I really want to highlight the show. And uh, it's free. It's free and it's all ages. Here you go. Here, here it is right here. It's the Holiday Slamboree. Holiday Slamboree. That's Sunday, December 18th, 2022. I believe they go on at 2 p.m. of the first show. Uh, no, the second band. Second band. Um, and that's at the Bowerly Electric in, um, you know, one of the last, you know, there's a couple of punk clubs. So not punk clubs. Rock clubs. Whatever you want to call them. A couple of clubs that are still left in the city in Manhattan, but uh, nothing like there used to be, as I'm sure Dave will be able to attest to better than anybody. Um, Dave, our guest. Uh, but yeah, definitely check out uh, Voice of Doom. They are so fun. I don't know any of these other bands, but I'm sure they're great too. Go check out Voice of Doom. Um, they are loads of fun. They do one of my favorite covers of Earth AD. Uh, no, not Earth AD. Wolf's Blood ever. And then the other friend I want to highlight, he's doing something. He doesn't, I, I, I did not tell him I was going to, I was going to mention this on the show, but I just want to, because you know, um, my friend Ace, who's been on the show, friend of the show, my friend and friend of the show, Ace Von Johnson, you know him best as the guitar player in L.A. Guns, is raffling off a guitar. So let's pull that up real quick. He's going to talk about that. I'm not, I don't know if I can play the video. I'll try my best here. Let's see if we can play the video for Ace. Ace, rock and roll. Okay, here we go. So this is what Ace has said, Ace Von Johnson, one of the nicest guys in rock and roll. Um, uh, want a chance to win this new Epiphone Les Paul GT standard? I'll be raffling it off for my birthday. Just watch this video for details, then enter by emailing avjguitarcontest2022 at gmail.com. Can I put that in the comments? I sure can. Here, this is the link that you set. That's the email. That you send to is it going to let me? It's not. Oh man, it's not even going to let me do it. So you go to AVJ Guitar Contest 2022 at gmail.com to potentially win a freaking guitar. Oh, it did. It went through. One winner will be chosen at random on December 27th. Please pass it on and thank you. Let's see if the, the video will play. Can you guys hear that? What's up, Ace Von Johnson here. It's going to be my birthday on December 27th, so I thought, what better way to celebrate my turning 40? Then by raffling off this brand new Epiphone Les Paul GT standard, you can see it's still got the stickers and everything on, right? 
All you have to do to enter the raffle is donate $50 or more to any charitable cause between now and December 27th. Could be St. Jude's, could be Toys for Tots, your local ASPCA, or my personal favorite, your neighborhood Pitbull Rescue. Any organization of your choosing. And if you've already donated in the last month, I'll even accept that as well. Just send me an email with a screen grab, photo of, digital receipt, or anything comparable to avjguitarcontest2022 at gmail.com in order to enter. I'll be drawing a winner at random on December 27th, my birthday, and posting it here. So please feel free to share this with your friends, tag somebody, pass it along, etc., so we can help encourage as many people to donate to their favorite causes, all in the name of rock and roll. Hell Thank yeah. You. Okay, so I don't know if that played that well. I tried my best here. I'll put a link to the thing as well in the comments. But yeah, uh, Ace is an awesome dude. He's always doing stuff for charity and um, just wanted to highlight that. Come on, you stupid thing. It's not letting me. What's up, Angus? How are you? Welcome to the sh tonight's show. All right. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll put that down below. We'll put that down below in the comments of this show. Um, without further ado, let's bring on our uh, guest of the evening, Mr. Dave Wright. He's going by Dave W. DW. Hey. What's buddy? up, Jeff? Good How to see you. How are you? How are good, you? Good to be here. Good to see you. Oh, man. The pleasure is all mine. Um, Dave and I met. We're going to answer the question in a minute, Dave. Dave and I met at um, the Mahoning Drive-In. We were introduced. We were introduced to each other uh, by a mutual friend, Jim the Tank Dorsey. You may be very familiar with Jim, a.k.a. Jonathan Grimm, a.k.a. The humongous among us, uh, the the a the other Ayatollah of rock and roll, uh, and he, knowing that um, I love punk rock and you know just sort of like a YouTube historian kind of guy about this stuff, um, said, "Hey man, you should talk to this guy Dave. He's you know, you know he went to he saw, saw all of your favorite bands that you know I wasn't born yet for." And um, and you should have him on the show. So Dave and I, we, we chewed the fat for, uh, I, I don't know, say like an hour or so. We really, you know, it was a, had a really great conversation. And then, you know, uh, life gets in the way of things. And I was like, man, in the back of my mind, I'm like, God, I got to get that guy Dave on. Got to get that guy Dave on. Finally, fucking, <laughs> finally made it happen. Um, I'm so glad that he's friggin' here. Dave, and, and I'll let Dave say an actual word. I'll shut the fuck up for once. In one second, uh, Dave uh, is not only is he an avid, you know, uh, taker in or, you know, appreciator, punk rock, punk rock connoisseur, but um, he is also a uh, cinephile like myself. This dude has such a passion for cinema and movies and the driving movie theater going experience he um he he spends so much time or a bunch of time at the mahoning drive-in theater which is where we met because there was this mad max uh quadrilogy marathon remember that and i did yeah. I, I posted the uh i posted the q a's from that on the channel you can go watch that but dave was there that's where i had, had met dave at mahoning okay take it away dave how are you what's up i'm doing fantastic so uh, so <laughs> Of course, pizza is punk rock. Um, pizza can be eaten in any social situation. Sylvester Stallone cuts his pizza with the scissors so in, Cobra, in Cobra as Cobra Netti. All these things add up. Of course, pizza is punk rock. 
Um, actually, cutting your your pizza with scissors is a very uh, efficient way to cut uh, to to you know distribute pie. And whether it's because you're cutting it up for a little toddler, or you know, I listen. I was in a I was in a place called the Parlor in Ardsley, New York. They don't serve you. They they don't cut your pizza. They give you a scissor. They give you a shear to cut so, your pizza. So I was at a party over the weekend, and for the first time, somebody brought out a pair of specialty pizza cutting scissors. I had, you know, I was four years old, four days old when I learned this. But apparently, that's that's a thing that they make, and uh, it's legit. I, now I don't know the reason why you would have to cut, or one would have to cut the pizza. Your like why you would have to cut your pizza, but you know, as opposed to just having the guy roll it with the thing, the the pizza cutter. But <laughs> apparently, it's a thing to cut your own pizza. So, oh, all right, yeah. I mean, I have a roller. We have a roller here at yeah, home. So do we. We get pizza delivered sometimes over a little bit of time. The cheese will stick together, and you need to recut it. Um, this is basic pizza 101, as I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. And uh, so either way, scissors or roller, I'm good to go. You know what? I just It just occurs to me, I think you just nailed it on the head. That is why, that's absolutely why you need, a sh the shears are probably designed for some sort of cheese reason, like the cheese sticks. So Cutting it with the shears, you know, especially if you have brick oven pizza that comes bubbling hot out of the oven. Yeah. I wonder if the roller is less efficient in cutting than than shears are, and that's why you shears. That's my own. That's the only educated guess I can make. <laughs> so, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. Um. So let's 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 just dive right in here. Because I, I am fascinated by um, all of your experiences in, oh, I mean, you have seen a lot of incredible bands and historic shows. How did you first discover punk rock? Because uh, can, can I, if I, if I may ask um, publicly on, on the internet, um, where uh, your age and like the age that you were when you discovered punk rock, because I think that's sort of interesting in the fact that like you know if you're born at a certain time period you got to experience all of this shit happen as it was happening so i'm 61 years old i grew up in north jersey um now in high so i was in high school 75 through 79 so most of my friends at that time were into kiss sabbath zeppelin Queen, your you know your classic rock staples, but for whatever reason, I, I just wasn't connecting with me. It, it just it just wasn't for me at that time. Um, so I'm gonna say in '79, I kind of I, I discovered I got into it via New Wave, The Police, Devo, The B52s. Um, I went to a couple shows, and I guess. In the space of a year, um, things moved music musically for me very quickly. So very soon after that, um, I bought the first Clash album, um, and from there it was Sex Pistols and Ramones, 
And then again, very quickly, I heard about the punk scene in California. And again, very quickly learned about the punk scenes in uh, the rest of the United States, whether it was Washington, New York. Um, and also at that same time, I have to say, uh, I was introduced to kind of roots music, Americana music at the same time, um, the Blasters, the Stray Cats. So I guess in a very short amount of time, there was my head exploding with all these different types of music, all these types of bands. Um, but um, also early on, I, I, I guess late 79, early 1980, I really started going to my first shows, got my driver's license, and uh, um, a couple of shows that really stuck out to me were seeing uh, the Buzzcocks and the Ramones, oh. not together, but separately down in Cherry Hill, New Jersey at a uh, club called Emerald City. Um, beautiful club. Uh, in its previous life, it was called the Latin Casino. Um, some uh, Frank Sinatra played there at one time. Really beautiful place to see a, uh, to see a band. And I can vividly remember kind of driving home from those two shows. Just, it was like a lightning bolt struck. And I said to myself, my God, live music, this is something I want to chase and follow the rest of my life. You know, it, it just made that much of an impression. So that's, so I'm going to put, I'm just going to pause you right there because I just want to sort of uh, marinate in that for a minute. So you're born in 61. Uh, you, you literally, I mean, you literally got to, you're just there at the right place at the right time. Like you just got to experience this stuff firsthand. Um, and I mean, that's just, that's just so rad. Um, now here's a question that I've, we've discussed this on the show before, but man, I want to hear your two cents on it. Um, and maybe if you could kind of like a sort of overview from your, I mean, cause you really seem you have a musical vocabulary. You probably could could dissect this really well. You mentioned New Wave. And New Wave, as it relates, can you talk a little bit about, from your POV, New Wave, as it relates to punk rock, as it relates to, say, record labels trying to be more commercial, um, and where you saw it as a consumer, um, and then, you know, where you saw the tree sort of branching off because it kind of what you have like punk rock, you have like the original punk rock esque bands, and then you have, uh, uh, things start to branch off a little bit and you get hardcore, you get this, you get that. Can you just talk a little bit about that? If, if that makes any sense of what I just said? Well, I guess new wave was a record, a, a term to make new music a little more palatable to the masses. Now, back in 79, Tom Petty's album, uh, Tom, Tom Petty's, was it Damn the Torpedoes, was billed at the time as a new wave record. Wow. So I think uh, a band that maybe a record company didn't know which way to push or pigeonhole um, maybe they had a different sound like the B-52s or, 
or Devo, obviously, or the police, XTC, you know, these, I think they were given a broad, that broad term um, to push a new type of music. Um, um, did you think that, uh, were there any of your peers who sort of, were there any of your other peers who sort of like found, I mean, I just never really heard that before that like new wave kind of brought you into punk rock and not the other way around. Um, was that, would you say that was similar for others your age or was that, you think you were unique in that? I, I guess it's possible. You know, everybody's got kind of a sweet spot when they're growing up and can be open to any type of new sound. I mean, hey, a lot of my friends were into classic rock before they sure. discovered and ran with punk, you know? So I, I think it's really different for everybody. Um, and then where did you see, again, from the ground floor, uh, this sort of deviation into hardcore music, how things became hardcore? Well, I, you know, when... I guess there's there's two ways to two ways to look at that. Um, you know, you had the the first wave of American punk bands. You had the first wave of British punk bands. Now, when the a lot of the California bands were introduced to the punk uh, lexicon, whether it's Black Flag or the Adolescents or the Circle Jerks, a lot of people called that hardcore. So um, you have that kind of first wave of hardcore, so to speak. And then obviously that, that term got um, recycled with uh, New York hardcore later in the 80s. But really hardcore was, um, I, I think Ian Mackay first used that term when describing his peers and his friends, how much that they were into punk, he would say to people, we're not just punk, we're hardcore punk. We're, it's a lifestyle for us. It's a music we really enjoy and want to push and celebrate. So I think that's the, uh, the first time it was used in that early reference, early 80s. Um, what bands were there bands that you particularly gravitated towards more than others that just really sort that that you just immediately spoke to you well i think there was a short laundry list of bands that if you saw them once you didn't want to miss them again so <laughs> um at the top of that list the bad brains um somebody asked me if somebody asked me the best live band I've ever I've ever seen, it's the Bad Band, Brad Brains from you know eighty to eighty four or whatever. Um, they were just incredible, <laughs> just unbelievable. So thank God that somebody brought a video camera to CBGBs in Christmas nineteen eighty two and videotaped. The, so they played a weekend. It was supposed to be their final weekend. I don't know which night is taped, Friday or Saturday, but uh, thank God somebody somebody taped that live set um, uh, just as a reference to how, how fantastic that they were. 
Um, also on that list, I would put The Cramps, incredible live band. Uh, the Dead Kennedys were not a band that when they came around, you missed. They were they were awesome during that era and uh, Black Flag as well. Let's take a look. Let's pull up your, you got this really sort of rad, let me see if this will work here. Let's see. Yeah, that's the one. All right. So this is, so explain to me, explain to the guests here or the, the viewers here, what exactly it is that we are looking at. You, you sort of created a scrapbook of, um, well, this is a set list, but uh, let's go to the scrapbook. Cause I want to ask you, I figured this was a great way to sort of ask you about shows and, you know, or maybe that we could pinpoint on specific things. Uh, oh, so the, here we go. We got some black flag here. So basically, anytime somebody came to town, you were there to see. I mean, you were just you were there. Well, a lot of what you're seeing. So those two set lists are from the Minutemen, right? Um, so Great they band. one of one of those one of those set lists is from the Ritz. The other one, I believe, is from Maxwell's and Hoboken. Um, both of which I poached off the stage after <laughs> conclusion <laughs> conclusion of the set um uh so um actually that that set list right there is a rather large one i think it's 36 inches high by wow 14 inches wide so it's actually right now that set list is in las vegas it's going to be an exhibit in the punk rock museum that is opening next year in Vegas. Yeah, you told me about this, and I started following them on Instagram. Uh, th this is an incredible, incredible sort of project here, where basically, um, it was it Fat Mike and some other sort of people have gotten, there's a guy that heads up the whole thing, right? And they, uh, they've gotten this, this, essentially, it's like a rock and roll hall of fame, but for punk rock history in Vegas. Correct. And so Fat Mike is kind of putting it together in Vegas. There are um, a series, there's, there's, I guess, three or four or five kind of quote unquote super collectors around the country um, that are gathering exhibits um, and sending them to Vegas. One of them is uh, Brian Gorsinger from the Nightbirds, the great punk band out of yeah. Brian has. Isn't their the last show is coming up? Their last show is going to be at the House of Independence. Oh uh, man, in Asbury Park in a couple of weeks. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. They are, they are a fantastic band. So Brian is an has an amazing collection, and uh, I know he's going to be lending some exhibits to Vegas, and he also buys sells actively seeks out collections and what have you. So, so um, they all, so now the idea is to make this a permanent institution. This is not a, a, a pop-up. Correct. It's, it's a brick and mortar building that's under construction as we speak. So it, it is meant to be a permanent installation. Yes. Angus says, I'm two years younger than Dave. Since I grew up in the Midwest, it took longer for punk music to reach my ears, and not nearly as many people were as open to punk. The, the music had not reached my area nearly as fast as the East or West Coast. 
Interesting. And also, uh, R. King says, I was lucky enough to become friends with the proprietor, Joe Vex, when I worked for the Vex when it reopened in 2013. Did you ever... Did you ever make it out to LA to see bands that performed at the Vex? I don't know if the Vex is. I'm not familiar with that. Uh, I've heard of the Vex. I think the Vex was actually in a Hispanic neighborhood in Los Angeles. Hmm. And um, from what I've heard about the Vex, for bands to travel out there and actually play was a little dicey. Yeah. <laughs> um, from what I've heard. But... Um, Unfortunately, uh, I I have I never made it out to LA during that that prime time. Um, I was always jealous of um, Jack Rabbit, who runs the Big Takeover. Fans oh, I know Jack. I know who Jack is. Um, Jack grew up in the town next to me in Summit, New Jersey. I grew up in New Providence, and uh, I I remember picking up the Big Takeover when it was literally a two-page mimeograph <laughs> fanzine. You could pick it up for free at the shows or at the record stores. And I remember in the early 80s looking at Jack's scene reports, he would go out to L.A. a couple of times a year and uh, report back on the shows he saw, and I was, like, incredibly jealous <laughs> that he was able to be out there at that time. I, I interviewed him many, many, many years ago, and... You know, it's funny. He so Jack is also a musician. He's a drummer. He was a drummer in a, a hardcore band, a lesser known hardcore band called Even Worse. That yep. was there with all the other ones. You just never hear about it. I think they were on the New York Thrash tape that that was put out, the Roar cassette uh, Thrash tape, um, and featured members that included Thurston Moore as well as Tim Somer, and yeah. Well, even worse, open for the Misfits one time. That's right. Precisely why yeah. I, I initially had talked to Jack Rabbit. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty rad. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's amazing that the big takeover is still happening and that it's, it is what it is. It's like a, it's a, it's an institution. It's a staple, right? It went from a two-page mimeograph to Barnes & Noble. What can I tell you? It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> That's man. all you need to know. That's all you need to know. And I will say, I you know, um, I've seen Jack at so many different shows. I never want to bother him because he's just like into the show. So I always just like, I, but I always see him. Like I said, every time TSOL comes to town, I always see Jack there. Yeah. He is a avid, avid TSOL fan. And I, TSOL used to crash at his pad and stuff when they would come out. And so I always see him at every TSOL show. I think it's so funny. Because uh, he's just he's there, man. Just uh, take taking it all in. TSOL played at White Eagle Hall in Jersey City, uh, maybe three four years ago. And as I was walking out, I saw Jack talking with uh, 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 Ron, the guitar player. So yeah, Jack's a big TSOL guy. Oh yeah, man. I've ne I I I don't know if it's I can't say for certain. But I don't think I've missed a T an East Coast TSOL show since CBGB's in 2005. Could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I've seen every single time that they've been on the East Coast. So since. I have a good I have a good TSOL story. Yeah, what's that? So in 1982, I believe uh, it might have been their first time on the East Coast. Um, you know, I had their, you know. Uh, 
dance with me album. I was a big fan. And here they are. They're, they're coming east. They're going to play at Pittsville and Passaic. So I had tickets, obviously. Um, I created a flyer to kind of put around because I wanted to spread the word. Oh, yeah. And uh, so after the show, I went up to the drummer, Todd Barnes. Todd. Who, who has since unfortunately passed away. And Todd had a TSL TSOL t-shirt on. Now, 1982, ends did not have merch, really. They did not carry merch with them. Except as opposed to as opposed to now when you know bands travel with <coughs> 20 different t-shirts and and everything under the sun so i said to todd todd you have that t-shirt for sale and he said to me no i don't and proceeded to take off the shirt and hand it to me literally gave you the shirt off his back shirt off his back <laughs> that's what that's what kind of guy he was so um beautiful uh, that that was very cool um, I am a a avid, avid, avid TSOL fan. I really, really love this band. I like love all of their work, uh, except maybe the uh, the Hurley record they did, uh, "Life, Freedom, and the Pursuit of Free Downloads," which was which they <laughs> gave out for free at a time when like everybody like hated like Napster and stuff. Yeah, so I thought it was kind of it was kind of punk as fuck that they recorded this whole album for free and gave it out. Uh, when all these, you know, bands are trying to, you know, and by the way, for the record, obviously, uh, love to support music and bands and downloading is wrong, but it's just interesting at the time when this, when, when downloading, when free downloading was a plague amongst bands that they were just like, fuck it. <laughs> it just released the music for free. It was really interesting. It spoke a lot about them for uh, 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 for sure. Um, I don't know. And, and their uh, and their album that came out two years ago, I guess it was. Uh, Trigger Complex came out in 2017. It's been five years. Some of the best stuff that they've ever done. Could A not fantastic, could fantastic not agree more. Could fantastic. not agree more. Um, yep. I I fucking love that record. Yeah, you got to tip your hat to them. I mean, they've had. Obviously, some different drummers over the years, but to, to roll with that same lineup, um, Mike, 40 years. Ron, 42 years, amazing on guitar and bass. Love, love that band. Um, there's something about Mike and Ron, the way that they sort of lock into each other. Uh, it's just that they are unparalleled. And yeah, man, I'm with you. I think the trigger and I told that to Jack. You know, I saw them with the Bouncing Souls, I think, in 2017 or 2018 on Long Island. And um, and I it was like the first time that I had seen them after that record came out. And I was like, dude, I love the new record, man. And he was getting they were getting shit. They were getting a lot of shit for that record. They were people were saying that record is, you know, uh, you know, they're not that they're not being true to their sound or whatever. And that's the thing about. TSOL, they're like they're they're brave explorers, man. They're so true to their themselves and like what yeah. they want to do. Uh, at the height of you know, they put out that four that four song EP, and it, they're they're labeled that they're pigeonholed as like a political hardcore band 
when in reality they're secretly a death rock band and they're doing death rock songs on like dance with me and shit then they put out beneath the shadows everybody's like oh this sucks because it has a fucking piano player <laughs> and they're like fuck you this is yeah. what we play and yeah. um it's some of their best music man it's some yeah. of their best music yeah. um I, I love that record and you know i mean i like all the songs they were trying to push are not the best songs on the record like give me more and satellite and uh i wanted to see you. those are good songs and those are the songs that stay in the set list but it's other songs like you're still the same and um uh, uh what is it this never lasts and um th there's just all the other songs that they don't play are the best ones uh, are the best ones on the, on the album, in my opinion, I think. I'm glad you said that to Jack, because when I was walking out of White Eagle Hall, I saw him and I went up to him and I said, congratulations on the new record. <coughs> it's amazing. So. And I bet he's stoked. <coughs> What's that? I said, I bet he was stoked because, was, you know. You, you could tell he was happy to hear that, you know. Yeah, man. I mean, that was uh, that was like that was a real ballsy record to put out because they hadn't put out anything in like almost a decade. And, you know, and they came back hard, man. Those albums that disappear and divided we stand were like incredible solid records that, you know, ironically sound more like the Joy Killer than they do like OG TSOL, which I don't yeah. mind. I think it's a great sound. It's it's true. It's true to what they're doing. But you could tell that clearly Jack had must have had some sort of influence on that, being that he was the guy behind the Joy Killer, and then they're doing, you know, they do these new albums as TSOL, and they sound very similar. Um, the sound had really transferred over. So, but yeah, no TSOL, great fucking band. Um, let me see what you have here. Let's take a look at some of your flyers, and this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to play the flyer game. Now, so what you did was. You basically, to keep track of all the shows that you went to, you cut out like the advertisements of yeah. shows that you were trying to go to, right? So you're looking at, yeah, so you're looking in the album that has um, all the flyers. I think the album where I have uh, the shows cut out is uh, actually a different album on Facebook. Oh. <laughs> but okay. um, yeah, so, so what I used to do was, so, in the early 80s, you know, obviously pre-internet and phones and, and iPads and what have you, there were there were the, the way that you heard about shows and what was coming up was um, every Thursday in New Jersey, um, I would stop and pick up the Village Voice and pick up the Aquarian. So that's where you uh, saw the concert ads. Um, Village Voice was strictly new york aquarium was, was pretty much both so that's how you would plan your your weekends for the for the next month or so you know such and such is playing here such and such is playing there um but a, a point that definitely has to be made oh there you go that's so, your first yeah that's so your those first are all 79 right here those are all shows yeah 79 80 uh, Dead Kennedys at Irvin Plaza. There's the Buzzcocks and the Ramones shows that I mentioned. <coughs> but one, one point that has to be made about that era, especially in this area, was that not only were there 
great American bands and European bands to see, but there were a lot of great clubs and venues sure. in, in New Jersey and obviously New York. We're talking, you know, um, you know, some clubs only last a month, other clubs, a few years, a few others are still going strong from, from that time frame. But, um, there, there were a lot of great clubs in, in, in both States. Um, like see the Capitol theater up here, which is right near where I live. I've seen a few shows there. It's a great place. Wow. So you saw, you saw the B-52s that early in 79? Yeah, at the Capitol. Capitol was a uh, uh, theater in Passaic, New Jersey. Um, I oh, think it different, held, cap, different Capitol. Different Capitol. Capitol was in Passaic, New Jersey, yeah. Okay, we have a Capitol um, in Port Chester. That's also called the Capitol. Interesting. Now, the, the ticket on the bottom, 1981 Dead Kennedys at Irvin Plaza was a bit of a groundbreaking show. I think it's the show that's a little kind of credited to bringing slam dancing to New York. I think Ian Mackay and a lot of the Washington crew drove down for that show and were backstage. And before one song, Jello Biafra said something like, I want to introduce my friends from Washington, D.C. They're going to show you about slam dancing. And Dead Kennedy started a song and like 15 guys came piling out of backstage, off the stage, into the crowd <clears throat> and mayhem ensued. But uh, that's what I remember most about that show. That was uh, a pretty amazing night. And what's going through your mind when you see all these kids rushing out? I mean, does it just make your adrenaline pump up? Do you get excited? Are you overwhelmed? It was exciting. I mean, the music, Dead Kennedys Live were, were pretty incredible back then. And, uh, you know, between them and these, you know, these kids with their shaved heads jumping off the stage, you know, that was a little bit new, but uh, very intense, very exciting. Um, what, you know, I, man, I had the, the pleasure of seeing the Buzzcocks right before, uh, Peter Shelley died, uh, in 2017 at, uh, what is now, what is now, what used to be the Ritz is now Webster Hall. I think it's no longer neither. I think it's just out of, out of business now. I don't know what the deal is. Um, what was it like seeing the Buzzcocks, man, back then at the height of their Buzzcocked them. I mean, that was when they were like that. That was when they're at their pinnacle, man. Well, I'm, I mean, you know, that band had so many great songs. <clears throat> All right, I'm sure you're familiar with the album "Singles Going Steady." <clears throat> that's my. That's one of my all-time favorite. Uh, it's actually, it's technically, it's a compilation. One of my all-time yeah. favorite records. One of right. my all-time favorite records of all time. It's a. It's a singles compilation, but every song is great. Every song is a sing-along. Everyone. Um, I, I think, you know, at that time when I saw them in uh, <clears throat> Cherry Hill, uh, a different kind of tension had just been released. Right. Okay. So not only were they doing singles going steady, but playing, you know, playing songs off um, a different kind of tension, was a, which is a great record in its own right. So... Um, 
but just you know fact fantastic musicians um at you know the height of their powers playing fantastic music um so very exciting you know uh, you know what's funny about the buzzcocks too and even just the ramones and having them buttressed against each other on this on this paper the ramones and obviously the ramones take their name from paul mccartney paul paul ramone which was his 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 uh hotel check-in name the ramones are kind of like the beatles when they're still wearing their leather in hamburg and yeah. the buzzcocks are like the punk version of the beatles 10 years later they are the 1963 1964 beatles uh and a lot of those songs on singles going steady are very they have a lot of beatlistic you know pop sensibility to them in addition to their snotty punk attitude well extremely melodic and yeah. you know <laughs> uh their tunes are extremely catchy so uh yes i i agree <clears throat> Uh, and what about the we got we have to touch on the Ramones briefly. So, you I know, mean, I, literally first show is the Ramones. I mean, fuck. I, I, I really, I really should have added them to my do not miss list. Uh, you know, the <laughs> the, the, the only the Ramones. You know, they played for fifty minutes. They did you know twenty eight songs. Amazing live, just fantastic. Um, you know the the issue. The issue that we had here in the New York, New Jersey area with the Ramones is that I think uh, we took them for granted a little bit, if you if you can believe that, because there were times when because they played they played around our area so much, so <clears throat> there were times when you would you know oh I'll catch them next time you know that type of thing. Um, what what we would give what we would pay now. Oh, see an early '80s Ramones performance, right? But you know, at the time, um, it seemed like you know they were around once a month. So if I didn't catch them this time, I'll you know I'll see them the next time. But um, just an amazing band. Now you, I mean, and you had seen them. I mean, Marky was fre not freshly in the band. I mean, that was like his second years of Ramone. That's that's amazing, man. That's really rad. Um. And then over here we have, again, now Irving Plaza, before it was called Irving Plaza. And Club 57, if I'm, please correct me if I'm wrong, Club 57 was the sort of promoter, they, or they would put on shows at Irving Plaza because Club 57 was actually something that was over on St. Mark's, right? Am I correct on that? Uh, you know, they had, they also dabbled in, in cinema. There was a, Right, club 57 movie club, Mad um, Monster movie well, club. Right, yeah. I mean, the Misfits were involved with that. Um, yeah, but I'm, yeah, I'm a little. You know, that was probably a couple of years before I started going to shows. So, to be honest, I'm not. You know, so that show, even though it's billed as Club 57, that took place at Irving Plaza. So, well, that's what I mean, though. That they would yeah. put on Irving Plaza used to be Fillmore East. Then it got changed to Irving Plaza, right? And then Club Fifty Seven would come in there, like they did their, they did the two Halloween shows in seventy nine and eighty with the Misfits and the Mad and Screaming Jay Hawkins. It was the Mad was seventy nine and Screaming Jay Hawkins was eighty, right? And that was Club Fifty Seven, but it was done at Irving Plaza. That was the distinction I was trying to make, but I wasn't 
I, I didn't, I wasn't sure uh, 100% if that was the case, but I believe that is the case that, that, that that's how it, how it, uh, how it operated. So they, they actually had a headquarters over on St. Mark's, but they would do stuff at Irving Plaza. I think. I think. Yeah. I'm just not, you know what I'm, I'm, I'm going to admit I'm not 100% on how that all shakes out. <clears throat> if someone like knows, said, in the, if someone knows, yeah. let us know. Yeah. Uh, Angus says, the first time I saw the DKs, it was so loud that my ears rang for four days and my glasses were smashed <laughs> in the pit. So <laughs> we, could, we could have a discussion about loudest shows as well. <laughs> well, in your opinion, that was Angus, Angus says it uh, DKs. For you, what was the one of the loudest shows that you had seen? I think the loudest band I ever saw was the Swans. Wow. That was in Asbury Park, and you could kind of cut the volume with a pair of pizza scissors. That's Jesus. how loud that was. <laughs> <clears throat> so the other, so number two would be Motorhead. Wow. Okay. Um, I saw Motorhead at the Capitol in Passaic, and it was so loud that dust was shaking out of the ceiling tiles. <clears throat> it was probably asbestos, and it's going to take a couple years off my life, but I can remember looking up and like seeing this dust in the lights. I was like, oh, my God, this is so loud. <laughs> that dust is actually being shaken out of the ceiling tiles. Um, so, yeah, that, that those would be the two loudest bands I've seen. So... Tony Subway, Tony, uh, secret, secret Subway, Tony, Tony Subway is in the crowd. He is uh, another alumni of, of your age who saw the Misfits multiple times, including that Irving Plaza show we mentioned. And he is, he is corroborating that, that uh, the thing about Club 57 and Irving Plaza, the idea that they would come in to Irving Plaza, put on shows. So Irving Plaza was its own separate thing, but Club 57 would do shows at Irving Plaza. That is at least interesting. Different. All right. So there you go. Um, I see here you saw, man, Stiff Little Fingers, another incredible band, Irish band, right? Aren't they from yep. Ireland? Yep. yep. Man, Suspect Device, fucking uh, Al Wasted. Alternative Ulster. Alternative yep. Ulster, Wasted Life. Yeah. One of the best yep. anti-war songs ever written. Yeah. By any band is by Stiff Little Fingers, in my personal opinion. Yeah, um, and that was, and you saw them with the Fast, which was a band that another one of those those sort of footnote bands that are they didn't really leave a good fossil record in terms of recordings. Um, but if you're if you went to New York shows, you probably knew you knew about the Fast. They were quite popular on that circuit, right? The Zone Brothers. I remember them. I remember them playing around. Uh, I don't remember too much about them. Yeah. But uh, definitely was part of that uh, early New York scene. Uh, I see down here, and I don't know if you made it to the show, but I see it mentioned uh, the specials and the go-go's. That must have been what a, what a bill that is right there. Yeah, the, the uh, second specials album, uh, more specials had just come out. Um, and yeah, I, 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 I really regret that I did not see the specials before that. I know they played at the Hotel Diplomat, <clears throat> which was a venue for a couple of years in New York. 
Um, maybe they played somewhere else as well, but I think that was my first time seeing the specials. Yeah, I, I love them, and uh, I still see them to this day. If they come around, I just go. Um, I know Madness, <coughs> another band, another contemporary ska band of of that time, Madness, um, was they were trying to do their 40th anniversary tour, uh, and they were supposed to play in the city but the uh you know it was around 2020 and that put a damper on things so i don't know if they ever re replay made up that show but that is yeah. uh it's another band that i wish or that i would that i'd want to go see i also see here the stranglers who uh man that they're one of the early i mean they started in 75 and their drummer just passed away he was way he was like 10 years older than the rest of the band he was like in his 30s when yeah. when they started stranglers Jet Black, yeah, just passed away. Um, R.I.P. Their their keyboard player passed recently as well, David Greenfield. <clears throat> um, interestingly enough, on uh, maybe the previous page, they Stranglers played a show in West Orange, New Jersey, at a club called Creation, very small club, and that's where I met. We have a friend in common, Lenny Splendorio. Yeah, Lenny. That that's where I met Lenny. Um, Shout out to Lenny. Shout out to Lenny. It was, you know, he was, I was like, you know, where do you live? I'm in Union. I was in New Providence. So that's really when I, I started going to hang out in Union uh, with Lenny. And for many years, we would, for years, we would go to shows together with Lenny and the, the Union crew. And uh, I still, still see Lenny time to time. He plays with, uh, plays drums with the Accelerators. Right. Um, so I, I just saw him at, with the accelerators a couple of weeks ago. Lenny is a great guy. Now, what's funny is when we were exchanging information at the Bahoning, um, I was entering your email and your email was already in my Gmail. And we were going, what the fuck? How is this possible? We've never met before. Complete strangers. Just, you know, just having this casual conversation. And I'm going, Dave, how do I? We've crossed paths in the path. As it turns out, Lenny had CC'd us all. I know this is so, such in, exciting information, but it's just, it just funny. Lenny had CC'd us like 10 years ago on some email, and you got added to my address book or something, or my Gmail recognized it. Because I don't ever delete an email. I keep every piece of email <laughs> that I have since 2008. I have every single email I've ever that's ever come into my email address. And I'll tell you, it's been very useful. I'll tell you that that that's like a memory bank without having to remember everything. And um, uh, there's been many times where I need to pull something out of the the old Gmail and it comes up. But I thought the that was really funny. The bottomless Rolodex. It's the bottomless Rolodex, and you know the thing about bottomless Rolodexes are. Here's the thing you have to remember: a bottomless Rolodex is sticky, and you know what else is sticky? stickers and the stickers <laughs> that we have on our, our channel are produced and made by riotstickers.com who sponsors this channel and we are doing a special promotion with riotstickers.com so excited to tell you about it um if you need stickers three inches by three inch stickers you need to put so, uh, an, uh, an image on your stickers look no further than riotstickers.com they uh, they can do what you need uh, with all your sticker needs. Um, they're UV coated. They're printed on vinyl, 
So they're they're solar proof and they're waterproof. They even do banners. Look at this banner behind me. That was printed up by them. They do magnets, buttons, and pins, bottle cap openers. I mean, they do it all, man. So anyway, let me tell you about this deal that we're doing with RiotStickers.com. Uh, you can get a thousand stickers for seventy nine dollars when you go to RiotStickers.com backslash Brumus. That's the only way you're going to get this deal. You can't get this deal anywhere else except for that link. You go to RiotStickers.com backslash Brumus. F R U M E S S. Link is in the description below. Uh, that's seven cents per sticker. Riot Sharpie Riot. He must be insane to be giving out such a good deal like that. Let's play the 60-second video from the guy in Less Than Jake, and we will be right back with more Pizza Punk with our good friend here, Dave Ray. Stickers.com, right? Stickers, we're the bomb. Okay, so you guys know where to go for that stuff. Now, let's get back. Let's look at some more of these crazy flyers, these crazy advertisements that Dave said. Okay, so we have some good ones here. You got Iggy Pop. Um, what year? Okay, I know my Iggy Pop stuff pretty well. What year is this Iggy Pop show? I believe that's 1982. <clears throat> okay, so that's right around the time of Zombie Birdhouse. And in his band, oh, God, 82, 82. I think Clem Burke had just done a tour with him, Clem Burke of Blondie fame. Uh, and he had Ivan Crawl, maybe, in his band. Uh, Zombie Birdhouse was, some of the songs on Zombie Birdhouse were written by Blondie's Chris Stein. Hmm. And I'm um, trying to think who else. And that also features, that was also around the time that he did a, he did a track for the, the Canadian animated film Rock and Rule called Pain and Suffering, which you can find on Zombie Birdhouse. Uh, that would have been a very weird, interesting, wonderful time to have seen Iggy Pop. So that show took place at a, at a really fantastic venue. <clears throat> Uh, the Meadowbrook Ballroom in Cedar Grove, New Jersey. Uh, the Meadowbrook has been around since uh, the 30s, uh, the 40s. Um, it was a venue that hosted big band remotes. Um, big bands would play. Uh, they would broadcast it all over the country, live from the Meadowbrook Ballroom. Beautiful venue. Um I believe it's it's still standing. It's a church now. 
um, but fantastic venue. That's awesome. Um, how was Iggy on that? At that show, was he? Um, he must have been really wired and or strung out and crazy. <laughs> um, to be quite honest, I don't remember a lot about that show. Um, you know, I, I'm sure. I'm sure he was. Uh, I'm sure he was crazy <laughs> as usual. Uh, well, probably wasn't too long before the shirt came off. Um, but I, to be honest, I don't remember a lot of details about that one. He released a book <clears throat> called "I Need More," and he had just gotten out of a mental institution of some kind or psychiatric facility. Uh, I was trying to get his career back. I was one of the lowest bottoms of Iggy Pop's career. One of them. First one wow. probably occurred in 75, 74, 75. And then again, in, in after the David Bowie period. Um, still, what a great wild time to have seen Iggy Pop. So many bands here. We have the we have X from LA, another incredible band. I saw, I got to see X once at Irving Plaza, man, but you got to see them. You got to see them like in their, in their heyday. That was also an 82 show. I'm, I'm going to say yes. Uh, th they were kind of another favorite of mine. Um, I had seen the docu, you know, I heard of them, had the records. Mm -hmm. um, that great documentary came out, The Unheard Music, right. um, about X. And uh, for the most part, they were another band that when they came around, I went to see them because I was a big fan. Man, you know, those, I, so, so my, my, uh, my worship of X is really ends after the first three albums. Not to say that they didn't do anything great after them, but that was like in the same way that like, listen, I love and appreciate every era of the Ramones, but really the first four albums are like immaculate for me. And it's the same thing with X. Those, uh, those, uh, you know, I try, I've tried listening to some of the later ones. They just don't really click every song on every record from Los Angeles to Wild Gift to under especially on Under the Big Black Sun is just um divine. Like so beyond. so my I have a so Under the Big Black Sun X did a signing in New York on Eighth Avenue maybe I, I I can't really remember the name of that record store but um I, I have my Under the Big Black Sun autographed by all four. They did a signing in New York. Oh, <clears> when, when that awesome, when that man. record came out, yeah. I um, they've been doing reissues, and I couldn't. I had to have them. I had to have all three of. I had. I have all three of them. I have the reissues for Los Angeles Wild Gift and Under the Big Black Sun, which are all it's gold foil vinyl. And yep. I just, yeah, I just had to have them. They're just such great records, man. That so cover, we, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to ask, are you a fan of The Knitters, their side project? Um, I, you know, I've listened a little bit. That's basically X without, uh, what's his face, um, Billy Zoom. Uh, uh, yeah, Dave Alvin plays, um, and I think they have a stand-up bass player in the band as well. And it's weird, too, because... Didn't Alvin also sort of join the reformed X as well? Yes. Yeah. I so it's that. super weird that they're like the knitters, but also like the reformed X without Zoom. Yeah, that was a bit of a 
it was a bit of a strange time. Um, as much as I love Dave Alvin in the bat in the blasters, um, it was kind of a weird fit not having Billy Zoom. That's big. Mm. That's a different style and big shoes to fill. You know, that his guitar playing is kind <clears throat> of irreplaceable. It's just such a. It's just so. Uh, you know. You know. It's funny to go back to TSOL for a minute. We were talking about TSOL. You know who's kind of the secret weapon of TSOL that no one really like dwells on is actually Mike Roach, the bass player. His bass playing, man. If you listen, there's some great early TSOL shows where the the cameraman is standing way too close to the bass amp, so you yeah. really get to hear everything that Mike Roach is doing. And he is, you know, not not to take away anything from Todd Barnes' incredible drum parts, but, you know, Mike Roach is a, he's doing so much and you don't even realize it. Like, that's what's so funny. It's like sometimes, like, the best musicians, like, they're if they're doing their job correctly, you don't even notice that they're doing their job. Yeah. And he is just, he's driving that sound. And I would say the same goes for Billy Zoom, man. You know, as a guitar player, no less. Usually, you know, and he's doing, you know, he's jumping. It's kind of like John Christ from Danzig, too. He just jumps from rhythm to lead to rhythm to lead. And uh, he's kind of the backbone of the sound in a way. I can't explain it. I mean, I don't know. Just really, really uh, integral to X's sound, Billy Zoom. Yeah, there's, there's certain members of certain bands that are, quote, unquote, irreplaceable. Even if you replace them, just not the same. Just not the same. Well stated. Um, you also got UB40, the Go-Go's. Now, the Go-Go's is a weird thing because the Go-Go's are, you know, if you ask anybody on the street, they'd be like, oh, the Go-Go's are a new wave band. But the Go-Go's kind of have like, you know, they have like West Coast punk rock roots. Yep. You know? Um so all those, most of the, a lot of those shows there took place at Hitsville, which is, uh, which was in Passaic, New Jersey, just a few minutes away from the Capitol Theater. Um, probably the closest club vicinity-wise to me, when uh, you know I was growing up and 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 of that age, probably maybe forty to forty-five minutes away from me. And uh, <clears throat> as you can see, I spent a lot of nights at Hitsville. <laughs> oh wow! A lot of many many great bands i think that the show senders, by UB, you got the senders there i think that show by ub40 was their first american show wow um, the go-go's was a it was a very early show uh i believe they just the we got the beat single was out i don't think they had an album out yet um you got but, you got the flesh tones with shrapnel which is uh danny ray's band before he Became the Ramones producer extraordinaire. Yeah, with uh, with Joey's brother, Mickey. Wait, Mickey was in Shrapnel. I did not know that. Oh, I'm thinking of the Rattlers. I'm not sorry. the Rattlers. Uh, uh, maybe Shrapnel. Daniel Ray was in the Rattlers too, but I know he was in Shrapnel. Was his band Shrapnel? Yes, they used to wear like the combat gear on stage. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm sure, Johnny Ramone <laughs> like that. <laughs> um, what was it like seeing? I mean, the, you got the jam. What about Peter Tosh? That's an that's a real that's a trip right there. Must have been interesting. 
Um, so those two shows were, were at the Ritz. Um, now, when people ask me, hey, uh, if so, somebody were to ask me, Dave, what was your favorite show of all time? <clears throat> I, I say it's that jam show at the Ritz. Really? I, was, I am a huge jam fan. They may, might be my favorite band. And, Rock uh, on, okay. <clears throat> and uh, that was the first time I saw the jam. Sound effects, um, their album Sound Effects, uh, I believe it just come out. And uh, the crowd and the band were both just on fire. Wow. Uh, just a fantastic show. Just loved it. That's Amazing. awesome. That's great. That's really great. That stuff stands out. Stands out in your mind. Um, all right, let's move. We got the Rock Cats there that has, uh, what's his fate? Barry Ryan was in the Rock Cats. I don't know if he was in the Rock Cats at that time. And, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's rad. Wild Willie Barrett. Uh, oh, Johnny Ottawa and Wild Willie Barrett. Let's keep going. Okay, what do we have here? Joe Jackson, the Ramones, the Clash in the movie. Uh, what is this one? This bottom one I can't see here. Oh, Rude Boy! They're in the movie Rude Boy. Um, yeah, so they they had screenings of uh, the Rude of Rude Boy, the Clash movie, when it came out, and uh, they had cool. a couple screenings at the Capitol Theater, and in a theater that had three thousand seats, there were about twelve of us uh, for that screening. <laughs> wow! Uh, but. Uh, it was fun. Um, you know, I got to tell you of, uh, you know, there, another band that, that obviously gets pigeonholed as, as new wave, but you know, has punk roots in fact was greatly admired, famously admired by John Lennon, uh, the B 52s, uh, who are just a really extraordinarily interesting band that a lot of people I feel like just don't really, you know, if you listen to that first album, man, I mean, obviously has Rock Lobster on it, which is one of their great, great songs, but uh, they just are, what an interesting, weird sort of band that's just really great. Those shows those shows must have been pretty interesting. Yeah, you know, I, I, I can't say I saw an early show from them. You know, Capitol Theater is a, is a big venue, so you sure. know, it was kind of a headlining thing for them. Um, so I did not see them in their club phase, but Yes, a fantastic band, very unique sound that they really made their own um, with, with you know, the girls singing. And obviously Fred Schneider was a great personality. Mm. Um, and Ricky Schneider, great on guitar. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away, um, I think, fairly early on in their career. But, like 84, 85, he passed yeah. away. Yeah, and and then the drummer Keith, he took over as the guitar player. Oh, okay, all right. And then they got a new guitar player, and then he retired from touring with them. Oh, uh, and it was just the three of them now. And I guess they're doing their farewell stint and whatever. And now they're like, you know, it's just they they started in that in that punk scene, but now they are, you know, I don't even know what you call them. Anymore. But they're always considered one of the great classic new wave bands, right? You know, end of the day, for sure, for sure. I mean, people look at them as mainstream right now, but right, right. That that's not certainly not where they came from, and uh, 
you know, they had some huge hits over the years, um, which propelled them to uh, great things. Um, on this next record, I first I see that you have the B Girls, that Cynthia from the B Girls, who used to go out with Stiv Bader's uh, interesting band. You got Susie Sue and the Banshees. Um, obviously, the thing I really want to ask you about, and I want to ask you about in detail, is this show right here, The Misfits, The Necros, and Black Flag. But before I can ask you about that, let's talk a little bit about The Cramps and what you're uh, – oh, and also The Professionals, which is, of course, the, the band that Steve Jones and Paul Cook did after, after The Pistols. And they actually – The Professionals, uh, they were in a movie – a Lou Adler movie called the, the Fabulous Stains, um, which was sort of like an early punk movie, I guess, or a punk movie, a, a early '80s punk movie. Um, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, um, yeah, the, the Cramps, uh, just an amazing live band, great on record, um, but even better live. Um, uh, I know they played some, they're obviously um, very popular in New York. That's where they lived. That's where they played uh, quite a few shows. Um, their record live at the Peppermint Lounge is, I think it would be considered an EP, but it's it's a Stone Cold classic. Um, Was Kid Congo Powers in the band when you saw him? Yes. Yeah, I never saw them with Brian Gregory, unfortunately. Um, but uh, Kid was in the band, obviously. Um, as far as front men go, I mean, what can hey. you say about Lux Interior, one, one of the greatest ever? Um, Poison Ivy on guitar, just incredible. Incredible player, incredible look. And then on drums, you had Nick Knox. Nick Knox, yeah. With, you know, <laughs> the black hair, sunglasses, black slacks, beetle boots, and a cigarette dangling out of his mouth. <laughs> just playing, you know, like he doesn't even care, but just laying down these beats. Um, just a fantastic live band. Just wonderful. And, you know, it's funny. I always, I don't know. Well, I, let me get your take on this. I've always kind of wondered why, you know, the Cramps never had, maybe it's just because, you know, the Cramps always considered themselves, you know, I've heard Poison Ivy talk about this in interviews, that, or, and, and Lux too, that they're kind of like everybody else, they, they kind of saw themselves as the only band really playing real rock and roll. Like to them, rock and roll was music from the 50s and the 40s, whatever, and the idea of rock and roll being sort of uh, a euphemism for fucking, essentially, which is the, how rock and roll started as a slang in that kind of way. And, um, you know, I don't know. It's just kind of interesting to me that they're like, you know, the, their sound and their music, um, they don't have a bass player. It's two. It's always generally it's two guitar players. And I always wondered why that was. And I always just assumed it had to do with, something about some sort of sound from the fifties that they were trying to capture. And I was wondering if you had any sort of opinion or idea as to why that they were a two guitar band. 
Well, you know, I, I would just say that they were extremely insular in that this was Lux and Ivy's world, and this is the way they wanted to mold it and present it. Um, and that was it. You know, this crazy amalgamation of rockabilly and science fiction movies and, you know, um, that whole lifestyle. Uh, you know, they had their they had their vision. That meant everything to them. Um, and I, I don't think they, to be honest, they didn't worry about other people's opinions of, hey, we should sound like this. We should have, you know, we how come we don't have a bass player? They, they didn't care. Um, and uh, I don't think their sound suffers for it. I, I think. Oh, definitely I'm, not. Definitely. They're. You know, it's that's unique. exactly it's you. That's one of the things that make them extremely unique. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, essentially, even if you really want to get down to the brass tacks, you, you know, if you have a rhythm guitar player doing some sort of rhythm thing, I mean, if you didn't want to have a bass player, I guess you don't really need one. You know, there's no rules when it comes to music. I just never heard. No one's ever given me a good reason as to why they chose to, to not have a bass player. And I just always assume, I mean, what you said makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I just chalk it up to that. Uh, and it's sad that she never, you know, he passed away. He had a heart. You know, it's funny. I remember when he died and there was a whole thing online. A lot of people thought he was faking. A lot of people thought that was a joke at first, that he had, I think he had a heart attack, had a heart failure. And they thought, people thought that, that was Lux interior playing because they had a sort of a dark tongue-in-cheek sense of humor about him. And that he had, he was he was still alive, that he was going to come out and be like, ha-ha, just kidding. And that was not the case. Yeah, you know, after, after Lux passed, I'm a member of, uh, there's a couple of Cramps Facebook groups and People, you know, bring up, um, you know, how's Ivy doing? Occasionally, every couple of few years, maybe a picture will come up with her at a party or whatever. But um, it's it's very clear that, you know, she wants to maintain a very private life at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, would I love to see um, a definitive documentary about the cramps? That's come up before i mean that's something i think we'd all love to see yeah uh, maybe you know a, a biography with her input but um or you know, a tribute this, show a tribute show where she plays a little guitar and people take turns singing the cramp not not build as the cramps obviously but maybe just like uh sort of some sort of ode to the cramps that would, i, I kind of wish they would do something like that it's a shame that they don't um, but you know what, at this point, she, she maintains that, you know, need for privacy and it's just yeah. something we have to respect at this point. Oh, um, for sure. Um, you know, obviously glad she's still with us and hope she's doing well. And, um, uh, I think that's where we kind of have to leave it with, with, with her. Yeah. Um, I'm sad that I never got to see them live and it's funny. I was making plans to do that. I was like, that was where I was waiting for them to come to Chicago. And then I heard that terrible news. And then that, that yeah. crazy idea that he was still like, that he might've still been alive or something. I was like, yeah. no one could definitively confirm 
that he had passed away. Crazy, crazy situation. Uh, shocking, yeah. shocking. Um, now this this show with the on. Oh, let's take some comments real quick. Well, you know, see here. Um, Angus is saying when I saw the cramps, they had a bass player. I believe later on in their career, they had Fur Dixon, who I believe was playing bass at that time. Okay. So, um, for a, a shorter period, um, I think they did have a bass player. Oh. Everyone hates my hometown. He had a bad experience from playing with Black Flag. Hey, man, I, after reading Stand By, uh, Get in the Van, and hearing about half of the insanity that Henry Rollins and Black Flag had to put up with, with just, you know, going from town to town. I'm sure, I'm sure that stuff happened, man. I'm sure, people, you know, that's what happens when you're on the road and doing a creepy crawl. Bad experience, bad, bad things happen or crazy, crazy things happen in certain towns. You just go, hey, I'm never going to come back here. <laughs> hey, the, you know, those guys were the, the Johnny Appleseeds of American punk. Um, yeah, man. Driving around and getting in the van and spreading the music um, yep. in the towns that, didn't care for them, didn't like them, wouldn't put up with them. And, you know, they just, they continued to blaze that, that trail. So uh, they, they established tour. I mean, touring like them. I mean, uh, you know, minor threat did that too. DOA, you know, I mean, like there was no roots. There was no way to travel the country and, and book shows and play music. These guys um, are just out there doing that, you know, for Ramones, sure. Ramones too. The Ramones, um, Dead Kennedys. Dead but, Kennedys, yeah. But the Black but Black Flag were, was really the band that got in the van and went from small town to small town. They went town. to all the nooks and crannies. They, they went everywhere and anywhere. It wasn't like they, they were, you know, in general, when you think about touring, you have to hit major markets or major cities where, you know, you're going to make enough gas money to get to the next place. You're not going to want to hit every little dingleberry on the bottom belly of America, because what if you, you know, what if a promoter doesn't pay? There's a lot of reasons not, there's a lot of risk. Um, but black flag was, yeah, black flag is one of those bands. That just, it went everywhere. <laughs> Drove across the country multiple times when, you know, that was not, easy for a alternative or especially a punk band to do so um trailblazers you have to tip your hat to them absolutely um now this show which i must i think this show is from had to be from 1982 i believe this misfits necros black flag uh christmas show uh at hitsville in new jersey which I, you can hear on many bootlegs exists um, first of all, what do you, let's talk, let's talk a little bit about the Misfits because we haven't spoken about them up to this point. Now you are, not only are you of the age that I mean, you got to see all these incredible bands, what do you remember of the Misfits, uh, or first hearing about the Misfits or the Misfits reputation? Um, like when did they get on your radar? Well, um, the first time I saw the Misfits was in October of 1981, their Halloween show at the Ukrainian Hall in Manhattan, <clears throat> just off St. Mark's Place. Um, they played with the Necros. 
Um, so obviously I was big into the music by that point and I had heard of them. Um, I'm guessing that I probably had a couple of their singles by that point and had at least heard about their live show and reputation <clears throat> in fanzines, what have you. So um, that was my first chance to see them live. And what uh, one thing I remember about that show is that um, before the show started and in between bands, um, the, Mif the Misfits set up a white bed sheet on the stage and they had a 16 millimeter film projector and we're showing horror movies projected on the bed sheet. So that was pretty cool. So that was, you know, Halloween weekend or I think it was October 30th, um, that show. So um, that, that was my, f my first Misfit show. I think generally speaking, um, the, you know, the Misfits did not extensively tour. They did not play a lot of shows. So I think the consensus was among myself and my friends, when the Misfits had a local show back then, original Danzig era, it was kind of an event, you know, and it was an event that you probably did not want to miss if at all possible, you know. Um, when they took the stage, they were a little larger than life, and they look like superheroes, you know, that, I mean, who looked, what band looked cooler on stage, you know, um, their, their, their songs for the most part were anthems and sing-alongs to boot. So, um, the crowd loved them. Um, generally speaking, again, their shows were not overly long. I'd, I would guess those early shows, none of them lasted more than an hour. Um, I can remember them using cheaper guitars and having a lot of equipment, equipment break, bass would break, the head would break off the bass. Somebody would bump into something or things got broken. Um, so generally speaking, the shows didn't last that long. But, um, you know, uh, like I said, every Misfits show was an event and you probably did not want to miss it. Um, so the um, Christmas, Christmas Day, 1982. Now, if you notice in my scrapbook, it says Misfits, Necros, Black Flag. Now, I cut out and added the Black Flag because they did not, they were not announced for that show. The um, Black Flag was in New York. Obviously, they're good buds with the Misfits. So they drove out for the show from the city. Um, now, I have never been that guy who walks into a venue 10 minutes before the headliner goes on. I'm the guy who walks in 20 minutes after doors open. <coughs> so that day after you know celebrating christmas with my family yes mom i'm i'm really going out to a show tonight <laughs> um so i remember walking in the club and seeing amps on stage with the black flag bars on them 
and I was like, what is, and I, I think I saw Robo um, walking around and it became evident very quickly that like, oh my God, Black Flag is going to set up and play, um, which obviously they did. Now, obviously I could not get on my cell phone and call all my friends and say, get down here. Black Flag is setting up. So there was not a huge crowd there when when Black Flag played. Um, but the other thing that was great about that show is that when Black Flag played, the Misfits, some of the Misfits and the Necros were front of the stage, just screaming and yelling the lyrics. And the same thing when, when the Misfits played, Henry and you know some of the guys were on the front row just yelling and screaming. I think there's a couple of pictures where you can see Henry at the front of the stage. <coughs> um, but uh, that was a pretty unforgettable night. What a, what a great show. Do you remember, okay, when do you remember Jerry and Doyle punching kids' legs when they were trying to stage dive over Jerry and Doyle in the front? Or when Jerry and Doyle were up front against the stage, was, were there people, did people kind of back away a little bit because they just didn't want to be near Jerry and Doyle because they were uh, spiky? Well, and, and, uh, well, yes. They, they, I mean, obviously those guys are intimidating, especially when they're in the crowd. Um, in fact, on a related note, um, so that was, that was Christmas Day. Um, let me see. Was it earlier? Um, I think the week, week before, um, Black Flag played a show at the Peppermint Lounge in New York City. Saccharin Trust opened. And I can vividly remember the Misfits came out to support Black Flag at that show. Um, now, the stage at the old Peppermint Lounge on 45th Street was a very high stage, like maybe five feet, with a checkerboard cement floor. And at the foot of the stage, you had Jerry, Doyle, Glenn, and you had Earl from... Earl Liberty from Saccharin Trust, who is like 6'4 and kind of scary looking, very intimidating in his own right. So you had that crew and the Misfits were in full gear. <laughs> so you had that whole crew up against the stage, front of the stage, while Black Flag played. So um, there was nobody uh, stage diving onto those guys, I can assure you. But no, I do, I do not remember anything like that going on at Hitsville. Uh, this guy, Mike Mindless, rest in peace, from the Skulls, who, uh, he, you know, he was telling me, I think it was the same show, but he mentioned, it was just a detail that I always could never corroborate, but always wanted to, it was a detail that always stuck in my mind when I spoke to him many, many years ago, where he said that, you know, uh, that if someone tried to stage dive over Jerry and Doyle, that, that one of those guys would just get annoyed because they're just trying to enjoy the show and reach up and punch it, <laughs> you know, jab at somebody's legs like don't don't jump over me. I always thought that was I always thought that was funny. Um, 
and I believe it was at that show. So that's why I was curious to hear, you know, it's always, you know, that's the funny thing about this stuff too. It's, it's always so interesting to hear everybody like, uh, tell, uh, uh, how they remember what they remember, uh, versus what someone else remembers. It's so interesting in that kind of way. Um, so was Robo, Robo was with Black Flag still and the Misfits, were they using Todd Swalla on drums, I wonder? I wonder if Googie was out of the band by this point. I'm trying to think. I, I, know, um, I know I saw Todd play with them at Irvin Plaza um, that same year, but uh, I believe that was June. <clears throat> but uh, I don't remember. I, I, I can't picture who was on drums. Uh, um, what do you remember from that show, the Irving Plaza show with the Beastie Boys and Todd Swalla playing drums uh, for the Misfits? Do you remember anything about that? Um, so I remember the front of the venue had these great two-foot-by-two-foot walk-among-us promo posters. So I grabbed one. And when I took it off, it ripped the corner. <laughs> so, uh, unfortunately, I, I sold that over the years. But I did grab that at that show. Yup, Todd, Todd played drums. Um, that was the show that I think uh, Jerry and Doyle wore the Star Trek shirts. Uh, so that looked pretty cool. Um, Necros were fun as always. Don't remember a lot about the Beastie Boys. Um, you know, I, I saw the Beastie Boys two or three times before. Unfortunately, I never saw them as a rap band, but I saw their punk band a few times. And Hollywood do. Right. To be honest, they were fairly unremarkable, you know. But um, uh, I can remember when um, License to Ill just came out. And they scheduled the show at the Ritz, and I thought, boy, that'd be fun to get tickets to. And the next day, gone. They were, they yeah. were gone, and and they were on the uh, rocket ship to stardom after that. But um, isn't yeah. it kind of funny? It's I think it's so funny how a band, how a band could, you know, they're they're like every other band doing the hardcore you know, the hardcore formula, and then they do something so different. They jump over to, you know, the hip-hop side of things and explode as a result. Isn't that interesting? A total 360. But, you know, you take those guys that are so creative, so inventive. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, a fantastic band. Um, you saw The Misfits with Even Worse at, and Kraut as well at Irving Plaza? Uh, yep, that was that. Uh, that was the same year. I think that was earlier in the year. Um, I don't remember. You know, it, I guess it was kind of a hometown show with, obviously, Kraut and even worse. Um, I don't remember anything in particular, bad, good. You know, it, it was a fun show. Irvin Plaza always a great venue to see a band. I'm happy to see that it's seen. I don't know that they're scheduling anything there now, but um, uh, up until a couple of years ago, they were active. But um, yeah, uh, another good show at, uh, at Irvin Plaza. 
Um, well, let me ask. Let me ask you this about Irving Plaza while we're here. So to play Irving Plaza was a pretty. I mean that that was a pretty good feather in your cap as a local act. On some level, would you would you say so? I would, um, but at the same time, back in that era, Irving Plaza was booking bands probably five nights a week. So they were booking, so there was a lot of bands coming through there, both touring and local. Um, sure, sure. But, uh, but yes, that's, that's, that's where you want to play. If that's what you want to aspire to, if you're starting out in a small club, small club is to play a, a, a great mid-sized venue like that with a great reputation. Okay, I'm about to really bother the shit out of you with this one, so I hope you're ready. There's a show, a very infamous show on your flyer roster here that i dying to know if you remember anything about. Super interested and important to hear what you have to say, if you remember anything. Um, the Misfits, The Undead, and Heart Attack at the Ritz in 1981. This is the only time that the undead opened for the misfits. Obviously, Bobby Steele had had a very famous falling out. Um, any with 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 Glenn Danzig, you know, the, the first nine toes later was supposed to come out on Plan Nine, and they got dropped because of something that Tim Somer had written actually about the undead. Uh, I'm just curious to know if you any details about that show and what occurred. Well, that show was in in december of 81 it was on a, a thursday night um and i can i remember bobby Steele was in the balcony of the ritz and danzig spotted him and was screaming at him now i don't know that that's ever come out on record or has been corroborated anywhere, but that that's what I remember about that because it was, yeah, I was kind of taken aback, you know, I, I thought it was kind of shocking. Um, so did, did you see Bobby Steele throwing beer at the Misfits? I thought, I thought that that happened. I thought I read that happened at Urban Plaza hmm. and uh, didn't, didn't the uh, Misfits, send a roadie up who, who threw him down a couple of flights of stairs or something, something like that <laughs> after that happened. So, uh, uh, do you remember any alternative lyrics to any songs that the misfits, uh, played, uh, in, in honor of Bobby Steele? That's a possibility, but, uh, that's not something I remember. What do you uh, remember about heart? What about heart attack? You remember anything about heart attack from that show? It was super young, Jesse Mallon, right? Yep. Um, I saw, I saw heart attack a few times, CBGBs. Um, uh, yeah, super, super fast song. Well, they had their God is dead EP. <clears throat> that was their, that was their record. Um, very fast, very, uh, I think there was just three, maybe I shouldn't, uh, I thought uh, heart attack, a three piece or a four piece on that. Sure. I don't know. But um, very fast, and Jesse, even at that young age, was a great front man. Um, 
one other thing. I pulled down an undead poster from the Ritz that night. It's in my scrapbook, and it says, The Undead, live at the Ritz, December 17th. And it's just interesting that it doesn't say The Misfits, and that I don't think any... Um, I think that that was the night of the Four Horsemen poster, Misfits Four Horsemen poster for their show at the Ritz. Um, I don't know how many of them they printed up. I don't remember seeing any, but I did pull down that undead poster and I still have it. And it's still, in, it's you can see the picture of it, my scrapbook. And it may be one of a kind. I, I have never seen another one. Um, so I think that show, that, that was a last minute edition. One of those bands got added on and initially... It was, it, there was not, it was not, I've, I've never seen that poster either. I'm trying to find it right now. Um, there, I don't think they were initially, they weren't originally supposed to do a show together. Um, do you, so you didn't know at that time that there was sort of like, uh, there was no sort of whatever scuttlebutt that the Misfits and the Undead were uh, rivals or angry at each other, or had animosity. Well, if I would have known about that, I would have read it in a fanzine. Um, but I don't recall like going in thinking, oh boy, there's bad blood between Bobby and Glenn. Um, but obviously I walked out with that feeling, you know? Sure. Um, wow. So you, okay. So you don't remember, so you don't remember Bobby doing any kind of heckling? Yes. Uh, well, oh, he did. was he was in the balcony, and he was getting into it, yelling things at the stage, I guess. And um, that's when Glenn laid into him from. I, I I don't recall specifically what was said either way, but I do remember the back and forth between the two. <clears throat> um, now. What I'm another thing I'm really curious to hear about, and again, like information, the way information travels at that time is very different from how information travels now. When you hear, when you hear about something that crazy that happens at a show, you could just read a Facebook post about it. Somebody from the band will issue a statement directly onto the internet and be like, "This is what happened," and I hate, blah, 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 you know, that sort of thing. Or you somebody posts a video with their cell phone. Back then, I mean, it it was it was a lot different. You had as you keep bringing up zines. We've talked extensively about how this was a a form of of underground media for anybody who wanted to know what was going on in these in these communities. Um, I'm curious to know uh, the the you know what you heard about. Uh, in regards to the misfits getting into uh, a whole thing in San Francisco with when they played uh, Joe Biafra was there uh, when Doyle hit a kid over the head with a guitar and that whole kerfluffle because eventually that information had to have made it back back to the East Coast and frankly the same for the grave robbing the grave robbing thing in 83 so I'm curious if like you know if the legend of these sort of incidents would you know today it's like this punk lore that everybody kind of knows, but back then what you might 
have gleaned or remembered about it for when you heard about it? Well, back then, you know, news from Los Angeles, the West Coast, I would pick up on that from reading about it in Flipside, um, the famous fanzine out of Los Angeles area. <clears throat> um, there was also Slash, uh, the newspaper fanzine, um, you know, uh, Maximum Rock and Roll. Um, now, do I remember specifically where I read about that incident? I, I do not. However, it was certainly news at the time and certainly got its share of ink in the fanzines because that was a that was a fairly big story back then. The you know the the violence and the attack at that show. Wow. Um, and what about the grave robbing? Did you did that make its way back to like the East Coast, the tri-state area? I don't remember as much specifically about that. W was that around the? Was that the obviously the trip when they met? Vampira and did the record store appearance or is this something different? That was in 83 with the Necros in New Orleans. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say the San Francisco incident was, was much bigger hmm. because there was just so much more fanzine coverage out of California than New Orleans. I don't know who, where, how we would have heard about it coming out of New Orleans, to be honest. Um, so that's so interesting, man. I mean, it's really interesting. Like, and it's funny how there's never really been a documentary about the spread of information via fanzines in uh, that time. I feel like that would make for such a great doc to sort of explore how that worked. And um, it's a shame that it's somebody who I'd like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a filmmaker who I'd want to see. We didn't even talk about movies. We're already an hour and 41 minutes in this bet. We'll have to have you back to, for, for something movie related. Um, the, uh, let's, let's talk about, let's talk real quick about the bad brains and we will, uh, we'll have to uh, have you back on again in the future because this is, there's just so much to go over. But the band that you've seen a lot of is the Bad Brains Band. And I, man, I am in awe of this band. Why are they not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Why do they not get their due? I know that, you know, obviously Black Flag is a very influential band in many ways, and so are the Dead Kennedys. But I feel like, I feel like from a sonic perspective, there's nobody more influential on hardcore music than the Bad Brains Band. I feel like they are, I mean, that's it, man. They start in the same way, they are as influential to hardcore music as the Descendants were to pop punk and melodic punk of the 90s and emo music that would come later, you know. Um, I'm just curious your thoughts on all that. Well, I, I, I guess part of it is touring, all right? I know when they did go to California, they made a huge impression, and anyone who saw them live swore by them. And it was very much the same here on the East Coast. Um, 
but I guess, you know, just uh, did not have that exposure for the most part or good exposure in, in middle America. I know, you know, they had some issues in Texas. <clears throat> oh, yes. The, the infamous, the infamous big boys incident for sure. Yeah. So, um, uh, uh, you know, I guess, uh, you know, uh, their lifespan at their peak, you know, when I, when I reference them as an amazing live band, I usually, you know, I say 80 to 84. Uh, I don't know that they could match what they did during those years and their later years. Um, well, what about 86? Yeah, it, you know, it just, um, I don't know, maybe it just didn't hit the same for me at, wow, at, look at this point at, after seeing uh, seeing the, those early shows. Boy, I can remember them, maybe it was that Urban Plaza show right there. Um, the walls just sweating. It was <laughs> so hot. Oh, my God. So, obviously, you know, when they played, they would play three, maybe four hardcore, you know, punk songs in a row. And then the band and the crowd just had to have a break. Yeah. So, you know, they would, they would, you know, I love my jaw, bust into their reggae set, but everybody needed it. You know, you, they, sure. <laughs> there was no way they could go on with that. Dynamics, level of, right? Level dynamics. of intensity for, you know, more than, uh, 12 minutes without having to have a break, but, um, boy, their, their musicianship, musicianship. Oh yeah. Just incredible. Unparalleled. Incredible. And HR as a front man was just manic, intense. Um, tragically was manic tragically because when I saw the bad brains in 2007, HR was a uh, a very very former visage of what he once was. Yeah, I know. I know he has canceled a lot of his solo engagements, and he's been difficult to work with, which is yeah. A, but a, I mean, a shame. Even, but but even before he can't, you know, I, I just mean in from the sense that like he just sort of had this reversal of. Well, I mean, part of it has to do with health, too, man. Like, he just can't do some of that physical shit that he used to do. But, um, you know, it's it's a lot of, it's, it's a lot of factors, a lot of issues. But it's just sad because, you know, I'm, sa I'm sorry to say this. And I've had people, I've had people from bands shoot laser daggers into my eyes when I've said things like this. But the reality is, is that I saw the Bad Brains with John Joseph from the Cro-Mags singing. At the C at CBGBs, and I had a better time than when I saw with HR because John Joseph, at least, you know, tried to e tried to emulate HR as yeah. opposed to HR, who was just like standing there smiling, not doing anything. So it was kind of like you know, I don't know. It was was it was a bummer, yeah. man. Yeah, they, bummer. you know, things change, but at sure. the same time. They have their legacy, and and that oh, yeah. is, you know, whatever you want to call it, seventy nine through eighty five or eighty four or whatever. I mean, they're technically um, still together, man. I mean, they technically still do shows. I mean, they haven't done a show in a bunch of years, but I mean, they were doing shows as recent. They had uh, the original singer Sid McCroft, Sid McCoy, 
He uh-huh. they, he sat in for a for a, a set with the with the Bad Brains uh, before he passed away. So, yeah, t- you know, time changes everything, but thankfully we have um, you know we have the records, we have in some no, cases sure. the, the videos and uh, to document what what was and and what was important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Kevin here is the same age as me. He also saw CB bad brains at CB's in the black it's last week for see we, uh, we were, we were the very last generation that got to go to CBGB's before it shut down the very last. I went to CBGB's last three years of existence. And then did you go to, did you go to some of the farewell shows there? I did not. I was living in Chicago at the time, so I missed those. But I, you know, I that's where I was, like I said, that's where I saw TSOL, and you know, um, I remember when the Dead Boys were doing their. They did that those two shows without Stiv. Uh, I think Adrenaline OD opened for one of those, and who did they have on the other show? Maybe the Nihilistics. Um, but you know, uh, it was the tail end. You know, can't help. Like, you know, it's just kind of like a bummer when, you know, everything just kind of sort of shut down all these legendary clubs. I know about them because I read about them. Yeah. I get to go to them. Um, you really got to see some really cool shit, man. You really did. So friggin' cool. What about the damned? I'm just going to keep asking you bands. You're going to be here till fucking midnight. Crazy. <laughs> um, tell me about seeing the damned. Boy, I love the damned. I've always been a big fan. Um, jeez, oh, what the my first damn show? Maybe it was at the Ritz. I'm I'm not sure. I know I did see the Dams. Let me get my hand. Farewell show <laughs> at the Ritz. I think that was in '87. Captain Sensible came out for the encore, buck naked. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I've always been a big fan. Um, the Damned are just amazing in the fact that those first three or four albums the change in personnel the captain moving from bass to lead guitar yeah man and you know brian james's band you know his damn 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 um every all of those records are so different and they all stand on their own and they're all fantastic <laughs> so um love the damn see them whenever they come around whenever i can did, and were I you really at the oh, with the with the misfits did you see that show no uh oh you mean at the garden yeah yeah i was there and too what, and what's so crazy is it's the reversal of yeah. the 79 hurrah show yeah which is awesome right what a what a mind fuck! Not only are they selling out MSG, but they have the fucking damned opening for that. That was that was such a uh, what what a what a glorious uh, victory lap. Let me ask you this: I mean, you have we we all grew up we all grew up uh, hearing about this legendary band that we never thought would reunite, the Misfits. And you're one of those dudes who got to see the original band, and you know, and and like. In all honesty, I mean, they were they were terrible live, right? Like it was just a shit show live. Well, uh, you know, maybe the sound was muddy, but the intensity and spirit was there. 
So you did not walk out of a Misfits show disappointed. You walked out sweaty and hoarse because you're singing along for 50 minutes with all those songs. And, uh, you know, some kid is jumping on your shoulders and because you got too close to the stage and uh, maybe you just miss getting hit, whacked in the head by, you know, by the bass, by Jerry's bass. Uh, no, they were a blast. Probably could they have sounded better with better equipment and, you know, maybe a, a an ace sound man? Absolutely. But um, you didn't walk out of those shows um, disappointed or not saying uh, you did not have a good time. What do you remember? Do you remember? What do you remember of Jerry at that time? His stage presence, his energy, any of those guys? Well, you know, uh, like I said before, they were those guys were larger than life. They were they were superheroes. They were wrestlers in the coolest stage clothes <laughs> that, that you would ever hope to see anybody in. Um, you know, the, the imagery was off the charts. You know, to walk in and see the Crimson Skulls on the amps, how freaking cool was that? I mean, it was, it, just the whole look was, the whole stage presence was amazing. Um, what, what, was anybody, at, was any, you know, the kids at that show um, thinking to themselves, you know, the Misfits are going to be playing effing Madison Square Garden in 35 years? Absolutely, you know, no. <laughs> it, it's, you know, it was, it's been pretty incredible to see how that band's legacy has grown over the years. And it's, you know, it's, you know, I've, it's at the point of kind of legendary status, right? Right now, I, I mean, the imagery, the Crimson Skull has obviously had incredible staying power. Um, and I, I guess part of that has, you know, obviously spurred interest in the band. Now, as, as younger kids have gotten into punk rock and they've heard, let me check out the Misfits, um, you know, they're going to plug that in their Spotify and they're going to be knocked out. And then when they want to go see what that band looked like, they're going to be knocked out. So you can certainly, I understand how how that legacy has grown, but it's, I mean, how, how do we, how do we reconcile that? You know what I mean? We've all seen great bands that we think should be bigger than they turned out to be. Um, it's, it's a pretty amazing story. Um, Kevin actually poses a really great, by the way, thank you, R King for, we'll, we'll catch you later. R King. Kevin poses a really great question. What do you think of this one? Kevin's saying, do you think the Ramones could have sold out MSG now if they were still around? And how would that differ from the I'm tacking onto that. How does that differ from the Ramones selling out MSG? And I have an I have I have my own answer, but first let's hear what uh, Dave has to say in his thoughts. In the proper context, the answer is yes. If the Ramones, say, broke up when they did and maybe played sporadically or not at all, but then announced, you know what, we're going to, like the Misfits did, we're going to play 
New York, we're going to play Chicago, we're going to play L.A. Um, could they sell out? Then I, I think they could. What do you, What do you think? So I think that part of the problem is, and it's kind of something that I, part of the reason why the Ramones hung it up in the first place, and part of what you were saying, even when talking about the Ramones back, back way back when in the you know late seventies, early eighties, you know they were a band that you took for granted because they were just always playing, they were always around, they were always they kind of oversaturated themselves. And that was partially because Johnny was like, the only way I'm going to make a million dollars is if I tour, I, I'm touring. That's what his goal was. He talks about in his book, I just need to make a million dollars. And the only way I'm going to make a million dollars is by playing these shows. So he would book, they would book these tours, they'd go out everywhere. And it got to the point, you know, you could go see the Ramones in whatever, like 1987, they pop out of a white van, 15 seat van or whatever. And they're playing some rinky dink club. This is the this is the legendary Ramones. Nobody gives a shit. You know, it's like whatever. The Ramones hang it up. Um, if the Ramones had not played a single show or done anything at Ramones like, if they didn't do the remains, which is something that Dee Dee and Marky, they had a cover band in the 90s called the Remains doing Ramones music. If nobody done nothing, if Joey wasn't doing well, maybe Joey was doing solo stuff. And and everybody remained in good health and whatnot. And they decided to come back 20 years later in 2016. They probably could have sold out Madison Square Garden. For sure, they would have done, they probably would have made millions and millions and millions of dollars in South America. Because if, if the Ramones were still all alive today, the Ramones are like the Beatles in South America, um, which is a phenomenon that developed in the 90s, oddly enough. Well, so, they... They were going to South America, playing those huge festivals, coming back to America, jumping in the van again, right? Driving to Jersey, playing for two hundred and fifty people, yeah, and headed back to New York. It was business as usual, which was a shame. But like you said, I think if the context was right, I mean, the Ramones' legacy is still very strong, very strong. Oh yeah. Huge, huge, so, larger than life. So under the right circumstances, like you said, and context, could they, you know, Riot Fest? Absolutely. MSG? I think so. Somewhere in, you know, uh, hockey arena in L.A.? I think so. So, I mean, they were getting, they were getting offers. They were getting million-dollar guarantees in the 90s, the Ramones were, down in South America. They were offered promoters. They broke up. They retired. I should say they retired. Huge difference between breaking up and retiring. No effects is retiring. They're not. They're not breaking up. They're choosing to retire, which who knows how long it will last. Um, <laughs> the, you know those guys, and they're doing on such good terms. I'm actually, I, I really like the way that they're kind of ending things, at least probably temporarily. Um, I, I just don't see those guys not doing no effects. Like no effects is one of those things I feel like they'll do forever. Um, the Ramones were like, yeah, we're going to hang it up. We're hanging it up now. Uh, right after they hung it up, uh, a promoter was like, we will give you a million dollars to come down here and play. And Joey who had, you know, gotten cancer. He's like, I can't do it. I'm not doing it. Yeah. He said no to Johnny and Marky, who was pissed. Marky was livid with, with, with Joey over this. 
you know, he was like, come on, just do one more show. Apparently the last show was not even the last show. They did other shows. They did secret shows. There were a couple really? extra. Yeah, there was like, I, you know, I, I got to. I got to look it up, but I'm almost positive there were a couple, there, there were a few additional farewell sort of things. So that whole legendary, you know, again, going back to legendary things, you know, apparently they, you know, the last time that, that Joey and Johnny, like they crossed the stage and bumped into each other in this very passive aggressive sort of way. Um, and then that was it. That was the last, but apparently they played after that in some, some shape or form. So part of what makes the, the the Misfits reunion so successful, what allows them to sell out Madison Square Garden, what allows them to command million-dollar guarantees per show is the fact that much like what 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 um, Dave has been saying, you know, that they, you know, there's this period of time. And again, if you really look at all the shows they played, they didn't play once a year. Everybody I interview says, oh, the Ramon, uh, the Misfits, they played once a year. It's not true. They didn't play once a year. They just sporadically, sporadically played, and they only played New York once a year. They were constantly, in some way, shape, or form, going out on the road to do something. Whether it was a couple of shows here, a couple of shows there, always you just take a look at the thing, the, the right. tours, the tour, the tour, uh, the tours they were doing. Um, but in that same way, you know, Dave is saying, "Oh, it was like an event. You had to be there. You had to go. Or something you didn't want to miss." And now the Misfits have done that again. They have created this demand, which is, believe me, it's diminishing returns, I think, at this point, a little bit. They have created this insane demand that really bubbled up. The final further was was coming home, a, a hometown New York show. You know, they played Jersey, and everybody's like, oh, that's the home show. The, the Misfits were a New York band. Sure, they played in New Jersey, but they were, they were a, they were, they broke out on the, the late 70s punk scene. You know, they were doing shows at Max's. They did, you know, some CBGB showcase. They were a New York band. So this was their New York hometown show, the damned opening. Forget about it. You know, um, of course. Could, could the, would the Ramones have done the same? I, I, I think they could have, but I don't know if it would have had the same. I don't know if the, the, the rift between Johnny and Joey was was as epic as the rift between Jerry Olney and Glenn Danzig. Really? Really? I, I didn't I realize mean, it was that. Oh, dude. Listen, I, I know I know that it's it, it was it was acrimonious. It was super acrimonious, man. Those dudes scorched hated earth. each other. Scorched earth hated each other. Oh, wow. And you know, I mean, the the law they had such an ugly lawsuit in the '90s, and they talked shit about each other so often in in the press. It just seemed like hell, green hell would freeze over before the misfits could ever. Re it would never happen. It would just it would never fucking happen. So for it to happen made that guarantee and just all that stuff we're saying so much. Um, higher in demand and i don't think there's another act out there some would say maybe the chromags i don't think so though i don't think there's any any band out there that could quite rival the you know the how epic the reunion of the misfits is so let me ask are, are jerry and glenn have they made up at all or are they put up with each other or you have any idea where that stands? Um, I mean, I, all I can say, 
all I can say from, you know, what I've casually gleaned, and again, I'm not, I'm not an insider. I don't know jack shit. But um, by the way, the answer to that, Kevin, is no, it was not. It was on, I forget the name of the imprint. It was not, they, they left Sire and they had a new label in the 90s. And I forget the name of it, but I don't believe it was on Epitaph regarding the Ramones, Adios Amigos. Um, I, you know, those dudes are playing together not because they're friends. They're playing each other because, yes, thank you, Rue. Rue, you're right. It, it was on Radioactive Records, which they started. Rue is a really deep, Rue really knows his shit when he comes to the Ramones. He's a Ramones expert. Thank um, you, Rue. Thank you, Rue. Um, Glenn and Jerry, man, they do it. They do it for the money, you know, rightfully so. Like, no, no, no bones about that. I mean, I don't, I don't know what the the personal situation is, but I kind of think it. I think this is the way I think of it. As uh, I think of it, like this, um, you know how they say two countries that both have McDonald's won't attack each other. <laughs> I think that's the perfect way to describe Glenn and Jerry. Like. Yeah. From again, as someone, I, I don't, I don't know anything. I'm just from from cat from all the reading that I do and see, you know, um, I, I'm sure that the money is too good for those guys. Have a good thing going, and the money is too good to stop. They're not going to stop because of a personal anonymity, personal animosity. They've somehow managed to get over that. They've gotten to this place where they performed 16 or 17 shows. They're not going to stop, you know. They're they're gonna keep going until they can't make the guarantee anymore, and then they'll they'll probably blow it out, and it'll be good. But really, no, no reason that. to kill no reason to kill the golden goose at this point. Well, I would I would I would I would imagine not. Um, I think that I I also think that the pinnacle of what they're doing this reunion thing as you know when a band reunites, look at the Pixies. The Pixies did the reunion thing for about 10 years. And then finally it was like, we've been doing this for 10 years. We either need to put out a record or we need to stop because this is fucking lame. We just keep fucking doing our song, which is, I, I don't think it's necessarily lame. A band, you know, if a, if a band reunites on occasion to, you know, play the old songs, what's wrong with that? But, you know, to go out, you know, year after year doing the same, you know, doing the Mike Love, you know, Beach Boy fucking thing yeah. over and over again. It's just kind of like it's kind. It is kind of lame, and so it, it kind of gets to this point of like, you know, the I think personally the Misfits have reached their pinnacle. You know, they're not going to put out a new album. They're. It's just going to be. They're just going to keep doing this show or a variation of the show. I think the MSG show in New York is the is the punctuation. That's it. Yeah, that was the be all end all. We saw it. We were there. That's the icing on the cake. That was the icing on the cake. It's like, that is it, man. That is it. Like, we don't, we're not going to get, it's not going to get better than that. Why did, why did they cancel their Las Vegas show with the Dickies? There's, there's a lot of rumors flying around. I don't know. Um, there's all sorts of rumors flying around as to why it was exactly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I, when, personally, my thoughts when I first saw, that they had canceled. I was thinking in my head, uh oh, I, I, I wonder if the, the, maybe there is some beef there because, like, you know, you don't can't, like it's a weird thing to cancel two months out from a show that big, yeah. you know, with the CJs. 
Like, yeah, you know, that, that's a big fucking show on New Year's Eve in like Vegas. And oh, I've circle, heard all circle jerks were on that bill. Circle yeah. jerks and the Dickies were on that bill. I don't the know Dickies if the Dickies that were, but oh, maybe that's who I was thinking of. Well, yeah. yeah, I'll tell you. I'll tell you, man. Like that—that that was a pretty big show to be like not playing it two months out or pulling out, especially with all like the contracts and stuff. So something—I don't know—something something must have gone down. Yeah, Will they be back? I—I I mean, I hope so in some way, shape, or form. You know, I've—I've I've seen them on the floor a few times, and like I don't really want to like—I don't really—I can't certainly at this moment cannot afford to shell out any more money for floor seats, even though I would want to. Um, and I couldn't see that from the seat, from the, from, from chair, from sitting at a chair, I'd have to be like literally getting my brains knocked out in the mosh pit. Like, what's the point? If, yeah. You know. um, so I, I'm happy with the MSG for me personally. I'm like, okay, MSG, that, that was good. That That's it, man. Uh, Kevin saying, no, I mean, no, I mean Ramones has an off had an offer from Epitaph, but instead they broke up. I never heard that. All the bells and whistles, great '90s punk production could have totally revitalized them. Imagine a Ramones album produced by Bill Stevenson. I can totally imagine that. And it would have been <laughs> fucking amazing. It would have been fucking amazing. Uh, there are rumors, Kevin. Kevin saying, "Did they ever disclose all their kids?" But there are rumors. I don't. I can't speak to it again. I can't speak to any of them. I don't know. I personally don't know anything. But, you know, there's all sorts of some people saying it's health stuff. Some people are saying it's low ticket sales. I don't think any I don't think any of it's accurate. I don't know what is the reality. Um, they said they'll be back in 2023, but it'll, it'll just be more of the same, man. Like, you know, it's going to be the same. They're just going to do the same show. It's a great show. But you know, again, it's kind of hard. It's three hundred dollars to like for floor seats. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, I will, Kevin. I will check. We got to wrap this up. Like, fuck, I wanted to do a ninety-minute show, and <laughs> I just love talking with Dave here. He's just a fucking awesome dude, and want to keep asking him fucking questions. Um, Dave, I want to thank you so much for coming on. And please, I'd love to have you back. I say this to every guest, but it's so true. It's just like when I have a killer good guest to have, get them back, we, we feel like we've only barely scratched the surface. I want to talk movies with you, man, because you're, you're such a movie guy. We wouldn't even talk a single movie. So we got to do that. Jeff, this has been a total blast. Uh, this is all the stuff I love to talk about. So. Uh, thanks for thank you for having me. And uh, anytime you want to have me back, uh, I'd be more than happy to. We'll do. You know, the thing I've been getting into lately, it's super fun. Just doing like top five lists, like just top five this, and then we go back and forth. It's so much fun. I want to do a film one, so we'll have a film roundtable, and you got to be on that roundtable. We'll, we'll we'll figure it out. I'll, I'll I'll be in touch, and we'll do. You know, we'll go through the whole rigmarole of scheduling, and we'll. Find something that works, and you'll come back on. Hey, I know you're a, a frequent visitor to the Alamo and Yonkers. Fuck yeah, I am. So I have never been. I've been to the one in Staten Island quite a bit. Are you going to be at the Faster Pussycat Kill Kill screening, 35 what is, millimeter? What is that happening? January 9th. It's a Monday night. I don't know, but one thing, listen – Take my phone number, and anytime you're coming, if you do make a trip to the Alamo in Yonkers, 
I mean, I'm not oh, like just text me, dude. Like I, it's so close to my house. I'm always going to shows. I gotta because of the season pass. I gotta if I don't go to a certain number of shows, then it's not oh it's yeah not financially viable for me to do the season pass. So it's actually kind of you know it's a it's a wonderful burden because I love going to the movies so much. But it's like if I don't make a minimum of two movies a month, then like it financially does not make any sense for me to go to to, to have the season pass. So yeah, check the uh, the Yonkers website. They just added a oh, bunch well. of um, thirty five millimeter screenings in January. <clears throat> so I, I think I'm going to come well. out. I think I'm going to come out for that faster. Then we will can. have coffee. We will have to grab coffee and we'll go. We'll go see something. Um, oh. I, I've never seen Faster Pussycat, so I'd, I'd be open to that as well. Oh, um, cool! I'll, I'll send yeah. you. I'll send you a message at some point. Do it. Do it. Do it. We'll talk. We'll talk, man. All right. Sure. I'm gonna. I'm gonna say peace and hair grease now. Goodbye, Rue. Rue says uh, thank you, Dave. This thank you, Rue. Show. Thank you. Appreciate Please it. Come back for another two hours. He says, and a big thank you to me. Thank you, Rue, for being the man. Uh, Kevin, I will check my Facebook DM in a few minutes. I'm so bad with these inboxes, especially the Facebook one. Uh, they, they just overwhelm me. I get, they, 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 they fill up. It's, uh, I don't like it. Um, but, yeah, I will check that. Um, trying to think what shows are coming up, anything. Oh, Kevin, check out The Bad Nerves, man. They are one of my new favorite bands. We just had them on the show. Fucking awesome guys from England. Uh, if you're into garage rock, if you like Jay Retard or any of that stuff, you will love the bad nerves. Check them out. So just want to champion those guys. And again, Voice of Doom is coming this Sunday, 2 o'clock, Bowerly Electric. Check it out. Free show, all ages. All right, now we're really saying goodbye. Peace. Hair grease. We'll see you all on the flip side.